Uh, one of the things we're doing as part of this Roman series is every couple of sermons, three, four sermons, we're stopping, going back over, at least to reinforce a little bit of the things we talked about, but trying to bring it all together. Because one of the things we want to make sure is that we don't, we don't miss the forest for the trees, right? So these, these concepts are hard. Romans is a very thick <laughs> book of the Bible. Uh, as Wade said, when we first started it, we could spend two, three years just going through Romans. Uh, and I know everybody would get tired of that, except for some of us really dorky people uh, like me. Um, but at the same time, it, because it is so thick and because we're moving through it pretty quickly and skipping over whole chapters, we want to make sure that we pause and take a minute to, to think about what God's teaching, look at it again, and then, and then prayerfully commit to it. Um, it's easy to sit and listen to God's word. It's easy to even get excited about messages. I know for much of my adult life, I'd go listen to somebody speak and I'd get pumped about the message and that being pumped lasted just right up to lunch. And then when I had lunch and kind of got into the rest of my day, I was no longer really pumped. It's not that I, it's not that I didn't care anymore. It's just that I left it there. I, I left the excitement or, or, you know, whatever it was I learned, I left it in the place where I learned it. And so we, we don't want to do that. And part of the, the spiritual growth and part of what it takes to, to walk more and more with Christ is, is to take it with us, but also that it, it becomes part of who we are. So, so that's what we're doing. So the last couple of weeks, we looked at Romans chapter 6 and then the first part of chapter 7. And we just want to talk about that a little bit this morning. It's kind of a review, maybe some new stuff. Uh, but, but that's what we're going to do this morning. So as, as Wade said the first week, Paul, Paul really begins his letter to the Romans. I mean, he comes right out of the gate. Some of his other letters, there's some pleasantries kind of involved, or he talks about people that he's been hanging out with and thanks people for that, thanks people for sending him stuff, and kind of the way you would normally start a letter. Letters to the Romans, he comes right out of the gate with the gospel. Boom, here it is. Here's the gospel. Here's the truth. Here's what God did. God created. God worked. Man blew it. Jesus came sacrificed himself on the cross, rose again. I believe it. You should believe it. That's it. There's the gospel. And it's just right out there. Uh, Romans 1 through 5, really in particular, deals with justification. I know we start using words that have ification in it, and everybody starts to zone out. Like, uh, here comes another ification. Justification. Justification. It's, it's, it's pretty simple. It's just salvation from the penalty of sin. When you are justified, when you have made just, been made just, justified, it means the penalty of what you have done or not done has been removed. So justification, very simple as you hear that and you might hear it in other messages or read it somewhere. It's really simple. You're just saved from the penalty of sin. And that's what Paul is really driving home in chapters one through five is this idea of justification. In chapters six through eight, he shifts gears. And then, so he, he assumes at the end of chapter 5 that you, you've trusted Christ and that you are free from the penalty of sin because of what, what Christ has done. And then he moves over to another ification, sanctification. All right, again, people start to, oh, it's a big churchy word. We, we do not avoid churchy words here. We do want you to know what they mean, <laughs> right? So we're not just, I'm not just going to say sanctification and assume you know what that means. But we do want to understand sanctification and build it into our vocabulary. You are all intelligent people and, and certainly intelligent enough to use words like sanctification. 
Sanctification is salvation from the power or the rule of sin in my life. So not just the penalty that comes from it, this penalty of death and eternal separation from God. I am justified through faith in Christ at the moment of salvation from that penalty. But then sanctification is freedom, salvation from the power and the rule of sin in my life. I am controlled by sin from the moment of birth, and I'm controlled by sin up until the point that I ask Jesus to rescue me from it. But then I have to let the power of sin go. I have to move away from that and be controlled by the power of God and controlled by the power of the Holy Spirit. Sanctification really deals with how God progressively makes the believer more and more into the image of Christ. And put simply, it's just sanctification is becoming more like Christ. Where God replaces the old self with Christ. Takes off another chunk of the old self, replaces it with Christ. That's, that's all sanctification is. And that's what Paul is talking about really driving home in chapter 6 through 8. And we've already looked at chapter 6 and the first part of chapter 7. In 6 and 7, Paul really then zones in on these this principles of Christian living. Like, what is a life in Christ, a life rescued by Christ, what does it look like? Like, what do I do if I'm in Christ? And we, we have these conversations all the time. Um, and we have them all over the place. And, and sometimes we get confused by it. We get frustrated by it. How, what does it look like to live like Christ? I mean, what, what does that mean? How does it play itself out in my life? And we have those conversations with our preschoolers back here and with our elementary schoolers. Uh, we have these conversations, hopefully, with our kids. I do. It's, it's, what does it look like for me to walk with Christ and live a life that shows that he has given me the victory over sin? How can we live in that freedom? I want to revisit a very simple statement that Michael said a couple of weeks ago in teaching on Romans 6, and it's this. Grace changes everything. Grace changes everything. God's grace, this unmerited favor that God pours out on us through Christ, changes everything. The question is, is that true in my life? Is it true that grace changes everything for me? That's the bigger question. I can make a truth statement that says grace changes everything. Absolutely, it does. Is that true for me? That's what Paul is really exploring in chapters 6 and 7. If we accept God's grace, we're crucified with Christ. And what does that mean? You may hear that all the time. There are songs about, I've been crucified with Christ. Now I live, right? It sounds great. Phillips, Craig, and Dean, you know, they're like 70 years old now. Still great song, right? But what does that mean? It, it sounds good, but when I say that to someone on the street, you need to be crucified with Christ. No, nah, I'll pass. Saw the passion of the Christ, not interested, right? <laughs> Hard pass. Um, what does it mean to be crucified with Christ? What does that mean? It means that I put to death my old self that was controlled by sin. I take that self. I find that guy in the mirror I grab him, I put him on the cross, and I kill him. 
That's what it means to be crucified with Christ. I take that old self, I put it to death, and now I live a new life through the power of the Holy Spirit. When we baptize, we say, buried in Christ with baptism and raised to walk with him in newness of life. It doesn't mean, as we've said, that the water has any power. It's symbolic of the fact that I am putting my old self to death by being submerged under water. What goes under the water is my old self, and what comes up is a new man or a new woman made in the image of Christ and, and is professing a desire to everyone witnessing that they want to be more and more like Christ every day. That's what being crucified with Christ means. That's a biblical concept. All right, how does that play itself out on the day-to-day? So we can talk theology, and we, sh- we are going to. It's critical. But then let's talk practical application. Point number one. If grace has made us alive in Christ, our attitude toward sin will change. I think I put should up on the board, and that's a mistake. Will change. Should, yes, but actually it will. If you are alive in Christ, if you have surrendered your life to Christ, your attitude towards sin will change. Look at Romans chapter 6, verse 2. Since we have died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? So, rhetorical question. Paul loves to use rhetorical techniques. This is one of them. If we died to sin, how can I still be alive in sin? That doesn't, that doesn't compute. It doesn't work out logically. It certainly doesn't work out biblically. What he's saying is, if you, if you truly surrendered your life to Christ and you asked Christ to kill your old self and replace it with him, how can you continue to live in the old life? It doesn't make any sense. Romans chapter 6, verse 6. We know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose what? Might lose its power in our lives. He's not even saying lose its attraction because that's wrong. Sin will always have attraction. What he's saying is it should lose its power because you're no longer a slave to sin. If you don't think Paul is a talented writer, go back and look at Romans 1.1 where Paul says, I'm a slave to Christ. He introduces the letter not by saying I'm an apostle or I'm awesome or I healed a bunch of people or I survived a snake bite. He doesn't, even, he doesn't do that. He just says, I'm Paul, slave to Christ. Nice to meet you. He comes all the way back around to that in chapter 6 here and reminds us that we are no longer slaves to sin if we're in Christ. We have joined him and we're slaves to Christ. Romans 6, 12 through 13. He says, do not let sin control the way you live and don't give in to sinful desires. Do not let any part of your body become an instrument of evil to serve sin. Instead, give yourselves completely to God For you were dead, but now you have new life. So use your whole body as an instrument to do what is right for the glory of God. To go back to an analogy that Michael used a couple of weeks ago when talking about real slavery 
and the abolition of real slavery. But if we're talking about being a slave to sin, and Paul says, I'm using this analogy because it's something you'll understand being in the Roman world, because you're all slaves to Rome, and some of you have been actual slaves. Either you've been indentured servants, or you're an actual slave. But either way, y'all will understand this analogy. We in the United States of America, we're, we're a little bit removed from the concept of slavery, but we still understand it. I don't go to the slave block and buy an arm. If David is standing on the slave block, I can't go and say, yeah, I'll give you $20 for his right arm twice a week. No, I have to buy him. Like, I buy all of him. And so no part of David's body gets to stay free. Does that make sense? I know it sounds a little silly, but you have to think about it in concept and what Paul is talking about here. No part of him gets to stay free. I buy him, he's my slave. I get to tell him what to do, when to do it, where to go, where to sleep, when to get up, all those things. Paul says, if I'm a slave to Christ, then no part of my body should be a slave to sin. I don't get to keep a toe in both worlds. I'm either one or the other. If we've surrendered our lives to Christ, we can no longer continue our cordial relationship with sin. We can't be buddies with sin. Sin has to become our enemy if we're in Christ because sin is Christ's enemy. So I've crucified the old self and been raised in Christ. Sin must be my enemy because it's Christ's enemy. I don't call sin on the weekends. I don't drunk debt text sin. I don't drive by sin's house to see if sin is at home if I'm in Christ. God forbid I go on a trip with sin or even worse, move back in the house with sin. We ain't friends no more. We can't stay friends. It's an either-or proposition. And that's what Paul is saying here. We have to treat sin like the cancer that it is. Cancer is an awful part of living here under the curse. It's awful. It's a life taker. It is a monster. We get angry at cancer. We watch people fighting cancer and we get angry. We contribute to cancer causes and we treat cancer like the monster that it is. And then we come over here and we want to have drinks with sin. Yeah, but sin, sin is a cancer and we have to treat it as such. It has to be eradicated. We have to do everything that we can possibly do in our lives to find a cure. The beauty of it is I know what the cure is for sin. It's Christ. I can stamp it out. And not in my power, he'll do it for me. But my attitude towards sin has to change. It can't just be something that I wish was different. Well, I wish I didn't do that all the time. But, you know, it's just, it's not cancer. I ain't kill anybody. Paul's saying if you're alive in Christ, your attitude towards sin will change. Second thing he's saying is if grace has made you alive in Christ, your addiction to sin will change. Not just your attitude, but
but your addiction. Look at Romans chapter 6, verses 16 through 18. Wade was talking about this in his sermon two weeks ago. Don't you realize that you become the slave to whatever you choose to obey? You can be a slave to sin, which leads to death, or you can choose to obey God, which leads to righteous living. Thank God. Once you were slaves of sin, but now you wholeheartedly obey this teaching we have given you. Now you are free from slavery to sin, and you have become slaves to righteous living. We're all slaves to something. We're all slaves to something. And it might be something mundane, and it might be something that's destructive. But, but we're all slaves to something. There's, there's something that we have to have. If you, if you ever want to know whether or not that's true, go, go sit at any kind of high school sporting event, and don't watch what's happening on the field. Watch what's happening in the stands. We're all slaves of something. I mean, I don't know how you can sit there and watch a game and never actually look at the game. I mean, you just... I mean, do you, do you have any idea how much that looks like slavery? I mean, we talk about the zombie apocalypse. I'm worried about... Guys, the zombie apocalypse is here. Ask the people at the City of Columbia Police Department how many accidents happen and almost happen every week in the City of Columbia because of someone just being a slave to their device. Whatever it is. And that's just a simple, that's just a simple example. We're all slaves to something. There are people that won't sleep these two weeks, three weeks of the NCAA tournament. They're a slave to college basketball. Like it's all they think about, they eat, sleep drink it. They've got 27 brackets that they've filled out. They're in 14 fantasy leagues. I mean, it's what they're a slave to. You can't talk to them at any point over these next three weeks and have any conversation about anything important. It's just college basketball and 18 to 22-year-old kids who can't seem to make a shot. Right? Poor kid from Wofford last night. Gosh. I can't stand Kentucky. What was I talking about? That's right. Does it make... I'm a slave to hating Kentucky. Does it... Kentucky basketball, just to be clear. I don't hate the state of Kentucky. Any of those great people. We have friends there. David's got friends there. Family. I don't... No. Just, just the Kentucky basketball team. And I want them to come to Christ. Just to be clear. Everyone... John Calipari included. I want him to come to Christ. Just don't want him to win any basketball games. All right. Back to what we're talking about. Does it make sense that someone who has surrendered their lives to Christ would continue to be controlled by sin? Does that make sense? We're born under sin's rule. We are born into slavery. We're born in a prison to sin. And we get institutionalized. In some ways, we can't even imagine serving another master. We can't imagine a life free from sin. It does not compute for us. It's a utopia to us. Even though we've been given the power through Christ and the Holy Spirit to live a life free from sin, we do not have to sin. We can't see ourselves breathing the air of freedom and we crawl back to the one master we've always known. And that's sin. 
And it, look, you know, we read history books and we look at these stories of people all over the world being, being freed from slavery and then going back to their slave master because it's all they know. I mean, we look at that all the time. Battered wife syndrome. Guy beats his wife to death. Police get called by the neighbors. The police come to arrest this monster who is beating his wife and she jumps on the police because it's all she knows. And battered wife syndrome doesn't just happen in women, by the way. They just call it battered wife syndrome because that's where it manifests itself the most. But we as human beings have a tendency to crawl back to the one thing that's enslaving us continually. And that works itself out in our lives in many different ways, including real addictions. One of my friends who was a cocaine addict and was a cocaine dealer said this, and it's never left me. And he eventually trusted Christ, but it's never left me. He said, I had to love life more than I loved what cocaine was doing to me before I could quit. I had to love living. The idea of living in freedom from addiction, I had to want that more than I wanted cocaine. And so laying on a deathbed in the hospital, hooked up to machines, almost having died, being resuscitated twice, I finally came to the realization that I wanted to live more than I wanted cocaine. And that's the same thing that's true of us in Christ. We have to want Christ more than I want sin. And what's sadly true about a lot of us is that we want to sin more than we want Christ. I just, I enjoy my old master too much. It's what I know. I get out in the world and I got to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. There's a lot of unknowns there, right? Uh, scary. Lots of unknowns. I don't know what God's going to do with me. I don't know if I'm going to end up in the mission field. You know, what if God sends me to the mission field? I think I'll stay over here where it's known. It's comfortable. We don't have to be just okay. I think we settle. We settle in so many ways in our lives. And then it plays itself out where we settle across the board. We settle for friends who don't care about us. We settle for spouses and boyfriends and girlfriends who don't exhibit Christ, don't know Christ, don't follow Christ, don't want to follow Christ. Why? Well, I I think that's all I can do. That's just okay. Well, it's okay. Well, but see, I mean, there's, there's someone over here who loves Christ and wants to follow him and you sure you don't? No, I, I'm going to stay over here with sin. I like my relationship with sin. At least, you know, at least we understand each other. I don't understand God. So I'm going to stay over here with what I understand. Again, it, it, it sounds kind of simple sitting in the room, right? But, but we let that play out in our lives every day. And all it does is just make us okay. Well, if the brakes don't stop at something, we'll... You guys nervous about your surgery? Yeah, me too. Well, we'll figure it out. We'll see y'all in there. <laughs> that, we watched that commercial. We laugh. It's so silly. Nobody would let somebody operate on somebody who had just gotten off the you know, suspension list and didn't really know what he was doing. No, that wouldn't happen in real life. And yet we expect that we've turned our lives over to Christ and continue sinning just like we did before we turned our lives over to Christ, and that's cool. 
It's not cool. And God, and Paul is pointing that out here. We can serve the God of the universe in complete freedom and through his power. You can. You can do it. You can do it through Christ. Third point Paul's making is, is that if grace has made us alive in Christ, we are free to live in the Spirit. We're free to not sin. We're free to not be controlled by sin. We are free to live in the Spirit. When we were controlled by our old nature, Paul says in Romans chapter 7, verses 5 and 6, sinful desires were at work within us, and the law aroused these evil desires that produced a harvest of sinful deeds, resulting in death. What does he mean, the law aroused evil desires? We were talking about it in the prayer room this morning. Mom has a great story from her childhood. They had a, well, my, my in-laws, not in-laws, my laws, my outlaws. My mom's family, it was a huge family. They farmed and raised livestock, and every year, and they still do, slaughtered pigs to have a huge barbecue. And as part of that, they would bring in a big pile of sand that they would use to put down underneath the pit. So it's a pit, open pit, concrete block, whole hog barbecue. Makes my mouth water, Corey, just to think about it. Because it's the best ever, right? But they always come in and this big dump truck full of sand, beautiful white sand in the yard. And then what does Nanny say? All right, kids, stay off that sand pile. Right. <laughs> For real. I mean, how many of you kids in a room would stay off the sand pile? Exactly. I wouldn't stay off the sand pile. And my mom tells this great story about how they used to, you know, get burlap sacks and get on top of the tin roof of the house by climbing up the chinaberry tree and slide down onto the sand. Why? Because they said, don't go to the sand pile. So not only am I going to, they didn't just go over there with a little shovel and scoop a little bit out of the sand pile to go over here and fill up a bucket. No, no, no. We got to do this thing big, right? We're not just going to get on the sand pile. We're going to climb up the chinaberry tree with the burlap sacks, lay those down on the hot tin that could cut our flesh, sit on that burlap sack, and slide down the roof of the picnic shelter into the pile of sand. Blaze of glory twirling two flaming batons on my way down, right? And that's our attitude towards sin. And that's what Paul is saying. He's like, all the law does is let you know what the fun stuff out there is that you can go get into. What we think is fun. The law highlights it for you. Wait a minute, I didn't know that was wrong, and now I do, and I want to do it. Like a little dude on Monsters University. All right, you can't touch the urchins. I want to touch them. want to touch all of them. I'm going to go take a headlong dive into the floor and scoop them all up. And that's what we do with sin. But he's saying we, we don't have to do that because the problem with sin is that it produces a harvest of sinful deeds that result in death. Earlier in Romans, he reminded us that the wages of sin, the payment for sin, the thing that sin comes around to the door asking for is death. You can do all this, but eventually you're going to get that knock. Hey, remember me? Sin, yeah. We used to date. Uh, time to pay the piper. 
and it's death. But now we have been released from the law, for we died to it, and we're no longer captive to its power. We can serve God not in the old way of obeying the letter of the law, but through the Spirit, which, as we talked about last week, actually helps us meet a higher standard. It's not just obeying the law. It's not just being a good boy. It's meeting a higher standard of being Christ. Back to this sanctification term, being Christ. Here's the reality. We're always going to be just okay. And we might look good in small group study. We might look good at our little Bible study or our little youth event or when we're talking about Jesus, around a bunch of people talking about Jesus. We might look okay in that. But the truth is we're going to be just okay as long as we're relying on our own strength and our own wisdom and our own obedience of the rules to sanctify us. We're going to be just okay. But to be all that God made us to be, we have to live in the Spirit and in His power. Because He's the only one that can make me like Christ. How do I do that? We get that question, and it's a legitimate question. How do I live in the Spirit? How do I practice law? How do I practice law? Do you practice law? How, how do I practice law? But you can't. You're a smart guy. David, how do I practice law? Okay, I studied law. You know how long I studied law? How long did I study law? Anybody know? How long is law school? Three years. Three years. So, including undergraduate studies, that's seven years of college. Seven years of college with a three-year focus on law. I have practiced law for 18 years in the state of South Carolina. Do you know how many hours of continuing education credit I have to take every year to continue to practice law? Anybody know? I have to go to school. So you, you thought school was done. <laughs> jokey, jokey, joke. School not done. Right? I have to have 17 continuing credit hours every year, which means I have to go sit through 17 hours of classes every year. And then I have to have two hours of ethics credit every year. So not just the 17 I have to have two hours to remind me of what being an ethical, responsible lawyer looks like so I won't not be one. That's how I get to practice law. And so for me, practicing law is sort of like second nature now. It's, it's what I do. All of you that have a profession, you've worked really, really hard to be able to practice that profession. And you continue to work really hard to stay on top of that profession and to understand the new techniques and to understand what's changing in technology and to understand what's changing in the world to be able to practice that profession to the best of your ability. And then we think we're going to wake up in the morning and say a two-second prayer over our muffin and we can live and walk in the Holy Spirit all day long. It's a fallacy. To walk in the Holy Spirit means I have to be immersed in God's Word. And I know this is a scary word. Study. Now, that sounds like school. Scrub that word out of your brain. 
It's not study. But you have to be immersed in God's word. Why? Because you love him and you want to know more about him. I want to know God more. I have to be immersed in his word. I have to listen to his voice. I have to listen to his voice. My partner, Tom, is one of the best trial lawyers in the state of South Carolina. I don't really care for half of trying cases. There's a, there's a part of trying cases, half of it I, I really enjoy. Half of it I don't. Tom loves it. Like when he's trail running, he's thinking about trying cases. That's not me. But the truth is when Tom says, I think you ought to do this this way, that's what I do. Because he is a terrific trial lawyer. And I have to listen, even though I've been practicing law for 18 years, I have to humble myself and listen to what Tom is saying. Because he's just got more time with it. I've tried two jury cases in 18 years to verdict. Tom has tried 57 jury trials to verdict. 57. And that's just in circuit court. That doesn't count his magistrate court cases. I think if we added up his magistrate court cases, he's probably well into the 150s of trying cases. He's qualified, more than qualified, to talk to me about trying cases. Jesus is more than qualified to talk to you about how to live. You just got to listen. I can hear it, but if I don't listen and build it into what I'm doing, it's a waste of breath. It's just blowing in the wind. It's words on a page. So I have to be immersed in his word, listen to his voice, and talk to him in prayer. That's how I live in the spirit. Again, it sounds pretty simple. It's obviously harder to put into practice, but you're just going to be okay if you don't do those things. There's no amount of talking, no amount of sermons, podcasts, books by Christian authors, books by people who need to stop writing books. There's no amount of that that's going to help you if you don't surrender your life to Christ, walk in the Spirit, love His Word, love His voice, love talking to Him in prayer. It has to be what you love. And if you love it, It'll be who you are. We want to switch gears from just teaching and commit to it. So here's our prayer focus for this morning. Question number one. Am I relying on God's grace alone to rescue me from sin? This is our primary operative question for every human. Am I relying on God's grace alone to rescue me from sin? I want you all to ask yourself that question this morning and be able to answer it. You should be able to answer it this morning. If you can't answer it this morning, when the musicians start playing again, we're going to be standing back there in the back And we would love to talk to you about the answer to that question. Am I relying on me? Am I relying on somebody else? Am I relying on my knowledge? Or am I relying on God's grace alone to rescue me from sin? Question number two with three subparts. Has God's grace radically changed, radically changed 
we use the word repent. That means turning and going in the exact opposite direction. Flipping a 180. Has it radically changed my attitude towards sin, my allegiance to sin, and my actions regarding sin? If you are still doing life right now, the same way you did life before you said you trusted Christ, you need to re-examine, number one, question number one, (laughs) am I relying on God's grace alone to save me? Number two, am I still a slave to sin even though I've been freed by Jesus? The last one, am I relying on the power of the Holy Spirit for daily living instead of mere obedience to the law? Am I satisfied with my ability to do just enough to not get punished or just enough to stay off the police's radar? Just enough to make my teacher happy. Just enough to make my spouse happy. Just enough to make my mom and dad happy. Am I satisfied with just skating by? Just getting around the corner? Or am I relying on the power of the Holy Spirit every day to make me more like Christ? That's the, those are the questions Paul is asking in these chapters. These are the operative questions for us as believers. These are the operative questions for us as a church. And if we can't get past this, we're just going to be okay. 